So if you've not turned there already, you can. Uh, Acts 22, verse 22, and then through 23. Uh, again, a large section, and mainly <clears throat> this is dealing with Paul's encounter with uh, both the Jewish religious council at this point, but then also the Roman political system. So it's, uh, it's more of a historical section of Scripture looking at Paul as he's now entered Jerusalem. Now he's dealing with the religious people uh, in Jerusalem and also the Roman uh, governing system, political system that's over all this going on. So here, uh, here is where we're at. Right before, in the very, very beginning of chapter 22, and Greg spoke to this last week, but Paul is arrested and he's on his way to the barracks. And as he's on his way, he stops on the temple steps And he begins to address the people, it says, in the Hebrew language. So he's speaking to them in their language. And it's at this point that Paul gives his entire testimony. And the crowd is sitting there listening to him. He's virtually in handcuffs, being led away. He gives his entire testimony at this point on the temple steps. And in verse 22, where we pick up, essentially the crowd had had enough. They'd heard enough. And it says they raise their voices, they're throwing dust in the air, the crowd becomes unwieldy in this point, and the scripture states that they shout that Paul should not be allowed to live, based on this testimony, based on all of these accusations that they have on Paul, they say he should not be allowed to live. And so the Romans, not wanting to really upset the balance of power that they have with the Jewish constituency, the Roman tribune begins to uh, bring him to the barracks, and they set him up to be flogged. And as he is laying there, Centurion holding the whip in his hand, ready to flog Paul. Paul reveals that he is, in fact, a Roman citizen. And he begins to question this centurion and say, Hey, is it lawful that you are to flog a Roman citizen before I actually have a proper trial? And this freaks the centurion out. And so the centurion kind of steps back and he says, Well, actually, it's not lawful. Part of their laws was that Romans could not, they had a law that forbid them to flog any other citizen without a formal sentencing, without a formal trial. And so they kind of question Paul a little bit, and, and the Roman Tribune says they kind of pause their proceedings, saying, okay, well, we can't move forward because this guy actually has not had a proper trial. So the next morning, desiring to know the real reason that the Jews were accusing Paul, what, the, what are they truly accusing him of, the Tribune up, uh, unbinds Paul and assembles this Jewish council of high priests. So they bring in this religious council of high priests. They convene in front of Paul, and Paul begins his defense, appealing to his faithful life. And in verse, uh, the first verse of chapter 23, he says this, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. At this point, Paul uses his understanding of doctrine and theology of both the Pharisee and Sadducee Jewish sects, and he begins to discuss the hope that he has that's set firmly in the resurrection. So because Paul was a Pharisee, because he understood uh, the, the Jewish religion, their, their theology, their doctrine, he begins to speak to these things and begins to speak to these, this council of high priests saying, hey, my hope is set deeply in the resurrection. The idea of resurrection at this point was hotly debated among these two different sects. So among the Pharisee sect of uh, Judaism and the uh, Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a future resurrection, although they did not believe that Jesus was the future resurrection. But they also had a developed theology of angels and spirits. So the Pharisees are, are kind of on this side, saying, hey, we believe that there will be a future resurrection. We believe in angels. We believe in the movement and spirits. The Sadducees are on the far other end of the spectrum. They did not believe, they denied the fact that there would ever be a resurrection. 
And they completely rejected the idea that there were angels acting as agents of God, that there were spirits acting as agents of God. And so as Paul is beginning to speak about the resurrection, a great debate debate among the Sadducees and the Pharisees break out in the midst of this kind of formal trial that now Paul is on. Uh, These differences, uh, because of the differences, this argument breaks out. The council among them uh, begins to kind of get at each other. It begins very uh, heated, turns into a violent debate. And so the Romans grab Paul. They take him out knowing that if this continues, if these two sides continue at each other in the way that they are, Paul is going to be ripped apart, the scripture says. So we need to grab Paul. They take him out of this. They put him back into custody. And that night, In verse 11 of chapter 23, the scripture says, The Lord stood by him, or stood by Paul, saying, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So in the midst of all this is going on, Paul's taken out of this situation that's happening uh, between uh, these two different Jewish sects. He's put back into custody, and that night, when he's alone, the Lord comes, steps by him, he is near to him, and he says, Listen, Just as I've told you to be here in Jerusalem, you will be in Rome as well. That next morning, 40 devout Jews bind themselves with an oath to kill Paul. 40 Jewish people get together and they say, we will kill Paul. They bind themselves with an oath. They begin to plot with the Jewish council that was assembled. For some reason, we don't quite know how, but Paul's nephew finds out about this plot uh, and he begins to go. He goes to the Romans and he says, listen, the Jews are seeking to kill Paul. They have a plot. They're beginning to organize themselves. So as you're transferring him from one place to the next, they're planning to kill Paul. So the Tribune beefs up their security detail around Paul. They begin to say, we, are, we cannot handle this. We need to move him to somebody that's beyond our uh, level of authority. So they put 200 soldiers around him, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and a, a personal horse-mounted guard around Paul. And they begin to transfer him with plans to bring him to Felix, the Roman governor at this point. So now they're moving Paul. They're saying, we cannot handle this anymore. The Jews are becoming too much for us. We need to get him out of here. We don't want any part of this. So we're going to bring him to Felix, Felix being this uh, authoritative figure over where they're at. He can deal with Paul. He can do whatever he wants, but we don't want to deal with him anymore. So upon receiving this letter, they send Paul. They send a letter with him uh, detailing the circumstances that are around Paul, why he's such uh, a, a polarizing figure right now, why they're bringing it to him. Felix puts him in custody and decides that he will hear Paul's case when the rest of the Jewish council is able to come and convene again. So now Felix, Roman governor, is saying, I will hear Paul's case, but I need to assemble the same Jewish council now to get so we can hear both sides of the story. And until then, Paul is ordered to be protected in the governor's palace. And that's where we end in chapter 23. So Paul has now moved from Jerusalem. He's moved. He's in Felix's care. And we're waiting to see what is the next step that Felix is going to do. He's bringing in the Jewish council now, again, this religious authoritative body, to hear two sides of the story. So a lot going on this morning. There's a lot of context, a lot of history in this. Here's why I think this is important. It's important to know the context of what is happening in these passages because I believe it brings more meaning to the theology of what Paul speaks about. And it brings more meaning to the experiences that Paul is having. You see, theology is never done in a vacuum. It's always done in a context, somewhere, somehow. 
And I believe that context brings greater meaning to the theology at hand. So therefore, what we look at this morning, what stands out to both Joe and I, the points that we're going to talk about, they're given greater depth, they're given greater meaning, they're given greater importance because of what is happening around Paul in this time. So that being said, we know the context. We're going to pause right here. We're going to pause for uh, a few moments to worship. And here's my encouragement as we worship. The band will come back on. My encouragement as we worship is to prepare our hearts, to ask God that he would prepare our hearts to hear his word. We know the context. We know the history. So now we say, Lord, allow us to hear from you. What is it that we need to hear this morning? Let us worship. As I had... uh mentioned a few moments ago, there are two important ideas that we can draw um, out of this passage. And first, having everything to do with Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Paul knew without a doubt that Jesus Christ had rose from the dead. And believing that wholeheartedly, and knowing where the the Pharisees and the Sadducees stood on the issue, see, Paul had the audacity and the confidence, and he says to them, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And as soon as he said this, a massive dispute broke out between the two. Christianity divides many. We see this in verse 7, when the dispute um, began, but we also see this carry over into verse 10, that when the dispute, dispute became so violent, the commander was afraid Paul was going to be torn to pieces. You see, the world calls out for peace, and the universal movement says, let us not divide. Let us be at peace. But but Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Christianity divides many. Jesus goes on later to say in that passage in chapter 10, those of you who love father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And those of you who love son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, them too are not worthy of me. Now, this isn't saying uh, that the followers of Jesus um, should reject their families at all. That, that's not what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Um, it's usually the other way around, actually. And I'm sure that there are some of you here in this room today who have family members who will not talk to you or who do not support you in any way because of your belief in the risen King. Jesus did not come to blend everything together, but to separate right from wrong, truth from error and light from darkness. You see, if if a man walked out of a grave, then he had the power over death. And and we have to deal with that. That cannot be, like, lightly glossed over. And no one can be neutral about it. See, if Christ is still in the grave, then then Christianity, all of this, really, really doesn't matter. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, that if God did not raise Christ from the dead, then we are still in our sins. And then there's no reason for us to follow the message or the words of this book or the teachings of Jesus, if that is the case. But if he came out of the grave, then nothing else besides that matters. And thankfully, Jesus did not remain dead. 
See, Paul knew that, uh, Paul knew exactly what he was getting himself into, and uh, uh, this is a huge part of this chapter, and essentially Paul draws this line in the sand saying, my hope is secured in believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul knew that the, the very thing that caused his persecution was the exact same thing that gave him endless amounts of peace. And God gets all the glory when we press into him, when we cling to his truth, no matter what anyone else may say. We see Paul in the midst of tragedy, clinging to the hope of the risen king. And if there are some of you here today who are experiencing personal tragedy, or maybe you are are currently experiencing that confusion or, or, or tragedy, if you let him, God will personally comfort you. And you'll know know more than ever that he is real and that he is near. If you're here today and you are walking and living for Jesus, I want to tell you this. That's salvation. So, So the death, burial, and resurrection. Salvation is the greatest miracle. Which means the most impossible thing in your life has already happened. If that is true and if we believe that and you believe that, And we should live like it. We should live and walk and talk like Paul did with boldness and courage. Let us live, love, and walk boldly for the cause of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And as the band comes up, we're going to begin another portion of worship. And during this time, I encourage us to focus our heart, mind, and soul on the hope of Jesus' redeeming work. Let us pause and worship the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Our second point, verse 11 of chapter 3, after Paul has been before the council, after he has essentially sang this worship song before the council, saying, my hope is in the resurrection. He's taken from that place. That big debate comes, it it becomes violent. The Romans take him out. They put him back into custody. And it says, that night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Put yourself in Paul's shoes at this moment. Imagine that scene in the council. Imagine the Romans coming and grabbing you and taking you out, putting you back in custody. You're in Jerusalem, the place you believed you were supposed to be. You're on trial. You're now imprisoned. You're in custody. Your own people hate you. No matter how many times Paul exclaims that he was ready for what was to come to him in Jerusalem As just a human being, a frail human being, you have to imagine that he began to question at this moment. He began to feel alone at this moment. And it's in this moment that the Lord comes and stands near to him, giving reassurance. The idea of nearness, the nearness of the Lord, has been an idea that I have long wrestled with. Maybe you're like me. Maybe some of you are like me, and and maybe you're not. But I don't always feel near to the Lord. I've never questioned the cosmic importance of the resurrection. But in my darker times, I've questioned, what does the resurrection mean for me personally? 
for me to be near to the Lord in a personal way. See, I understand the need for Christ to come and conquer death, and I can sing songs like we just sang and believe it with my whole heart. But that doesn't always mean that I feel close to Christ. That doesn't always mean that I have a sense of nearness with the Lord. See, I haven't had a lot of divine moments in my life when angels appear to me. I can't remember a time where I've heard the audible voice of the Lord. Or times where I've spoken in tongues or, or spoken a, process, a prophecy over somebody or received a vision or had a dream or when I've laid hands on somebody and I've miraculously seen a disease leave their body. That's not to say that those things don't happen because they do. And there are people in this room who have had those experiences. It's only that I haven't had those experiences. And because there have been times where I've questioned the nearness of the Lord. If you guys remember that uh, footsteps poem, raise your hand. How many people's mothers have the footsteps poem hanging in their living room? Most of us. No matter how many times I hear that poem, it just doesn't satisfy my, my idea or my wrestling match with this idea of nearness. And yet, we are to have a hope in the resurrection. That it should lead us to rest and to peace, knowing and trusting that we serve and love and follow a living and active God. A God that is indeed near to us because he is resurrected. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, speaks about it this way. He says, few other truths are taught in the scripture with as great clarity as the doctrine of the divine omnipresence. Those passages supporting this truth are so plain that it would take considerable effort to misunderstand them. They declare that God is imminent in his creation, that there is no place in heaven or earth or hell where men may hide from his presence. They teach that God is at once far off and near, and that in him men move and live and have their being. You see, I begin to believe that nearness to the Lord isn't always miraculous. And in fact, I think it's more often mundane than miraculous. And I believe we're in danger when our definition of being close to the Lord, when our definition of nearness to the Lord necessitates divine encounters and miraculous experiences. You see, in fact... The very nearness of the Lord, the very presence of the Lord, I believe, is the reason we're here this morning. The very reason we have life, the very breath that we take every moment, is because of the very near and real presence of the Lord. And in times of need, when the Lord isn't literally standing next to you, when you can't hear his audible voice and you begin to question, is, that, is the Lord really close to me in this moment? Pause right there and look at the people standing by your side. Notice the reality that with every passing day there is healing and depth and joy and restoration. Notice the subtle ways that your needs are met relationally and financially and spiritually and physically. You see, even though I haven't had those same experiences as Paul, I'm beginning to feel the nearness of the Lord in my life. I feel it when I hear my kids pray. 
or when I sit in my living room with my small group and I listen to the way that God is moving in their life, or when I'm here and I'm able to worship like we are this morning, or when a good friend calls me with encouragement, or when I'm outside in the reality of God's creation, or when I see a need met, or when I'm able to speak into a person's life. Those are the times that are beginning to sense the nearness of God. Beginning to feel the nearness of the Lord, not because I believe he's making himself present to me in some literal fashion, but because I've stopped waiting for angels and visions and the security of God's audible voice to speak directly to my heart. I'm feeling nearness because I've begun to allow his undeniable omnipresence and sovereignty work in my life. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in the nearness of the Lord, not because of his literal physical presence next to me, but because I feel him in everything, everything else that I'm close to. Because he is sovereign. You see, I don't think we can simply wait for the Lord to come near to us, but we are to faithfully move towards him, trusting that he will meet us. James says this in chapter 4, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There is foundational truth in this scripture. The Lord is near and desires to be near us, but we too have to create space for him. We too have to desire his presence in our lives. We cannot wait for his nearness and then be hurt and disappointed and angry when we don't feel it if we're not willing to earnestly seek it out. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Paul experienced the nearness of the Lord, and for him it was a miraculous encounter often. And for some of us, like I said early, we will have those experiences, we will have those miraculous encounters, but I believe many of us, myself included, need to turn our attention to feel the Lord's nearness in the mundane of our lives, to see him moving and acting all around us. For when we do, then I believe the true power of the resurrection becomes a reality and becomes truth for our lives. So this morning, as we continue to worship, the band will come back up. We're going to take part in communion. And for many of us, communion has become a mundane thing, something that we do often. My encouragement this morning is not just to remember the presence of the Lord as we take communion, but to actually experience the presence, the nearness of the Lord as we take communion. Risen Lord, be our resurrection in life. Be the resurrection in the life for us and all whom you have made. Be the resurrection in the life for those caught in the grip of sin and addiction. Be the resurrection in the life for those who feel forsaken. Be the resurrection in the life for those who live as if you do not. Be the resurrection in the life for those who do not believe they need resurrection in life. 
be the resurrection life in churches that believe they are dying and in successful churches who don't know they are dead. Be the resurrection life in us who know the good but fail to do it, who have not been judged but still judge, who know love but still live for self, who know hope but succumb to despair. Lord, be the resurrection in the life for those dying of malnutrition and hunger. Be the resurrection in the life for those imprisoned unjustly and those imprisoned justly. Be the resurrection in the life for those who live under regimes that seek to crush all who proclaim resurrection in life. Be the resurrection in life for those in the throes of sickness that leads to death. Be the resurrection in life in families where the weak are maltreated by the strong. Lord, be the resurrection in life in marriages that are disintegrating. Be the resurrection in life for women trafficked and enslaved by forces of wickedness. Lord, be the resurrection in life for those whose lives are snuffed out in the womb. And be the resurrection in the life and the life we share and the fellowship we enjoy that's filled anew with the wonder of your love and the power of your grace. We may go forth to proclaim your resurrection life to a world in the grip of death and yet on the verge of redemption, a redemption promised by you and assured by what, what occurred on the first Easter morn. Amen. You guys are dismissed and hope you guys have a, an awesome week.